Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Listeners are advised that this episode contains discussion of suicide. If you need support at any time, please call Beyond Blue, 1300 224636 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. I'm Julia Gillard and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Today I'm speaking with Indira Naidu, who is one of Australia's most accomplished journalists and radio presenters. During her 30-odd year career, she has hosted and reported for numerous news and current affairs shows, becoming a well-known and celebrated personality on Australian TV. Today you can hear her voice on the ABC's Nightlife program. However, in 2000, Indira branched out beyond full-time news broadcasting choosing to pursue advocacy based around global environmental problems and linking these to conflict, poverty, equity and food security. She's also become an advocate for food gardening and design, publishing The Edible Balcony and The Edible City. Her most recent book, though, is a very different offering. Entitled The Space Between the Stars, it is a deeply personal exploration of Indira's views of love and loss and the restorative powers of nature, which she wrote following her younger sister's death by suicide. Indira, welcome. It's lovely to speak to you after so many decades of your presence in our collective consciousness. Are you getting used to being the subject of interviews <laughs> these days rather than being the interviewer? Julia, this is an absolute delight to be here with you uh, having this conversation. And Yes, I have to admit, after many, many years of being on the other side of the microphone, I am slowly adjusting through this book of uh, being the interviewee, but it's delightful. Well, I do want to talk about the book, The Space Between the Stars, which I have just read, and I loved it. It's an incredibly powerful book, which prompts tears, I'd have to say, but also contains so much joy. In it, you talk about growing up with your sisters, who you call in the book Dreamcatcher and Stargirl. You're the oldest, and then there was just a year between you and Dreamcatcher and another year between Dreamcatcher and Stargirl. So you're the oldest. You were almost like triplets, really. So close are you. And you were an incredibly tight band because you moved so often during Mm. your childhood. Can you tell me about that? It's such a unique story. I guess it is. I... I only realised as I was getting older just how unusual our experience was. We grew up, uh, were born in South Africa, grew up in in Zambia and South Africa, and because of apartheid, my parents couldn't pursue their careers and their work in South Africa, so like so many immigrants of the time, we became that journey of finding a country where my parents could bring up their family. We went to England, then we went to Australia in 1974. We were part of those 
assistant migrants that came out during the Whitlam era. We were provided with a, a home. My parent a father was a dentist and so we settled in a little dental school in St Mary's on the east coast of Tasmania. So a very unusual place to end up but for us as a family we thought we'd ended up in paradise and it was a wonderful way for three young little girls to grow up because we had the Australian bush as our backyard. We'd walk through the bush. Uh, wombats and kangaroos and wallabies would follow us as we went to school. And that was probably where my engagement with nature, particularly Australian nature, began. And because we moved all around a lot as a family, that one year between us was very tight, but it made us even tighter. So we became our own little gang. And I was often the ringleader causing the most mayhem, coming up with crazy ideas and, you know, let's jump into that stream. We don't know what's in there. Climb up that tree. And my poor little sisters would sort of follow. They were my sort of devotees. And uh, I'd get them into all sorts of trouble. But it made us incredibly, I think, also resilient against the changes we were thrown into. So often you find with immigrant families, they suddenly are thrown into a new culture, a new language. They often feel isolated, trying to establish themselves. Because we had that tightness with each other, it didn't matter if no one wanted to talk to us at school because we (laughs) had each other. So I think looking back on it, it was such an important way the three of us became very confident about who we were and we knew we could just be who we were and people accepted us or not because we we knew we always had these other two, you know, sort of fans in our park, I guess. So, yes, to lose my sister was such a seismic loss because it was more than losing a sister, it was more than losing a sibling. It was like losing a part of my body because we had been so intimately close for such a long time. And I say in the book how it's only my two other sisters that really had share the same memories as I do because we didn't have other friends that went through those experiences or other relatives. And certainly our parents were quite separate to us as well. It was almost like there were three of us and only two of you, so we could always gang up against them as well. It, it sort of felt like that. So we were extremely tight. So that sort of loss is devastating and it does require trying to go back and and rebuild who you think you are without this key person in your life anymore. And the images that you draw of your childhood, they're such intoxicating ones. I mean, you sound like you had so much (laughs) unbelievable fun. And of the ones that really caught my attention, the one I liked the most was when you talk about you and your sisters were out doing Scottish Highland dancing, (laughs) you know, over the cross swords and the kilts and the pointed toes and all the rest of it. And you, I think, acknowledged that you were not the talented (laughs) one. I think you might have used the phrase hopeless in it. Uh, But your other two sisters were award-winning at this Highland dancing. And it's such a beautiful image about acceptance, about race and acceptance, imagining these girls of uh, Indian origin in their kilts. (laughs) How did you think about race? How did you and your family think about race when you were growing up? I mean, did you have that consciousness at school in Tasmania, particularly in those days, that you were different? Mm. It's so, again, unique, I think, the way that we understood race. We knew from our parents that it was because of apartheid and and the colour of their skin that they couldn't live in their homeland. And they were very political and very determined all our upbringing that we would understand what racism was and why it was repulsive and why it needed to be stamped out. And they spent a lot of time as activists trying to end apartheid in South Africa. So we were aware of all those activities. 
When we arrived in Australia in the mid-70s, of course there wasn't a lot of immigration and certainly not dark-skinned people coming from anywhere. So I don't know what my parents were expecting. I think they were they were prepared maybe for rejection or, or having to somehow adapt to this way. What happened was not what we expected. We were seen as rock stars in this town and we must have been so odd. So we were little Indian girls. We had very strong British accents and we were wandering around the Australian bush, just very odd. But that little town really embraced us. They needed a dentist desperately and they just took us on face value. You know, we wanted to settle. We were bringing these skills. We wanted to make a new home there. We weren't expecting the rock star part of it. And I'm not sure why that happened, but the kids would fight to sit next to us in class. So the complete opposite experience that so many immigrant kids get, you know, when you settle in those bigger cities like Sydney and Melbourne, maybe because it was a small country town, maybe they hadn't had any experiences that that made our arrival anything negative. But we were adored. We were made to feel special. And in a way, I think that hasn't really left me. And completely different to my cousin's experience when their family settled in Melbourne and Sydney. So I think that that was another important grounding experience for me, the fact that we were so embraced, we were so loved, and there was just a sense that we were just like everyone else. So yes, we felt special, and that was probably unusual too. But I think I'll always look back on that way we were adopted and, and, and welcomed by that town in St Mary's, and that's probably been the foundation for everything that I've done since. And what about gender? When would have been the first time that you thought to yourself, girls get treated differently to boys? And I think, I mean, I only have one sister, but when you grow up just with sisters, it's not apparent in your family in the way that it might be if there was a son, the differential treatment might be really in your face. But for you, when was that moment that you thought, gee, it's because I'm a girl that something's happened? Yeah, Julia, you're right. Coming from a family of only girls and from a traditional Indian culture where where boys generally would be the preferred child or the special child, That didn't happen in our family and I don't know because my father I think has some of those views, had some of those values. He'd say, dear, you've got to help me change the oil on the car this weekend. And I'd go, oh, do I have to? And he'd go, well, if I had an older son, he'd be doing it, not you. You have to do it. So it was really interesting. So I got to do what I thought were all the, the terrible jobs that, you know, if I had an older brother, he'd be doing it. You know, he'd be taking the car out and changing the oil you know, how to repair the lawnmower, weird things that I learned how to do because my father didn't have a son, you know, that I sort of became that. I don't know. So I was conscious that they wished there had been a boy in the mix and that I was probably the closest that was going to get to that. But I never felt inadequate in any way. I I don't know, maybe if there'd been a boy in the family, it would have been more clear, but they still emphasise it was really important to get your education. You still had to succeed and and do well. If anything, what became the the main thing they focused on was our our colour, our cultural background, not so much our gender. So I think I was later in life that I came to understanding what my gender actually was because everything was always, you know, you're going to have to work twice as hard as that person because they're from an Anglo background and you're not and you're an immigrant and they're not. So the emphasis was always on that, not on boys and girls and and men and, and women roles. But, of course, that must have always been playing in there as well. And I think also having two sisters 
It just makes you feel quite invincible. There is something I talk about in the book, the power of three. Like you do feel you don't really need another number, another person, you know, that we were already fully formed, the three of us. It's a complete set. So I never had to really question my gender growing up. For me, it was always just great being a girl because you could do all the girl things and do all the boy things as well. And was it then in journalism that you first hit this consciousness that you were going to have to work harder or there would be people questioning your abilities or your capacity to fit in on race or on gender? And and Mm. why journalism anyway? What took you there? I just fell into it, actually. I was always fascinated by, from our travel experiences, travelling, meeting people, talking, loved writing. I was curious, wanted to know what made people think how they thought about things. I just applied randomly for a few courses and journalism happened to be one of them. I would have been happy probably going into foreign affairs, particularly because I do love international affairs. So journalism happened, rocked up at, at college and nearly everyone in the class were women, all the students. There were only two students that weren't women. So again, that also gave me a very skewed view of what really happens in the world. So again, I just stayed cocooned with women students for the next three years. And then when I started the ABC in Adelaide as a cadet, again, there was more women in the newsroom as reporters than men. Now I realise how unusual that was as well. And if anything, again, why I kept delaying having to to deal with my gender is that being young, because I started very young, I was only 21 when I started in the newsroom, that became the challenge, an ageism that I found where I had to keep proving that I could do things, that I knew things, even though I was young. And I was so young, it just took so many years because it was such a young age to start. So I think it wasn't until my 30s when suddenly I thought, well, okay, I'm not young anymore. It's pretty clear that I'm on television, you can see the colour of my skin. And that was when I started to notice my gender and how one of the phrases I always would hear that I just absorbed maybe as a compliment and then realised just how misogynistic it actually was is I'd do something and the uh, editor or the chief of staff would say, not just a pretty face then, not oh. just a pretty, you know that line? And you, f- you hear that a lot, particularly in television journalism, when, of course, the way you look is a large part of what you do. That happened quite a bit. And I would always think, I suppose that's nice, I, compliment, I don't know, how do, where do I put that in? And so I look back now and realise that that was what you're always trying to bring to the fore this sense that, no, you are smart, you can think, you can do the job. And yes, of course, television is visual and it made it doubly difficult for women in that environment. But there was an overemphasis, obviously, for women compared to male reporters. I never heard a male reporter being said that they've done some good work, but they're also a pretty face or something like that. Yeah, that happened to me quite late in my career. And did they put much pressure on you in terms of how you dressed, how you appeared? Was there more dictation around that than there were around the men because the men already knew the uniform was kind of a suit and tie? You're just trying to fit in and do the job and you think like a lot of jobs, well, if that job requires you to wear overalls, that's what you'll wear. Your job requires you to wear the, the, you know, the little tight jacket and the short skirt and the heels, so that's what you wear. You don't question it. It just seems like the uniform. And again, it's only later on that you went, hang on, that's really restrictive. That really made it really hard for me to run through that bushfire when I was wearing heels and this tight skirt. Whereas the uniform for men made it much more comfortable for them to do their job, you know, for the full 
full day's work. You know, as you talk about in your work, there is this pervasiveness of misogyny that is so deeply ingrained, particularly in those visual job roles, that it takes you a very long time to question why is that necessary and why is that unfairly placed on on women rather than than men? It's being challenged and questioned now, but it, it can be doubly hard in a career that is visual, like television reporting. And all these years later, you're still doing things with the ABC. You are a host on Nightlife, so it's your voice that's in people's ears late at night when they turn on the radio. And during COVID, I think all sources of media had a special intensity for us. We were much more locked onto the news than at other times. We wanted to know, are we safe? Are our families safe? What was this experience like for you being a late night host at that time? It was an extraordinary time. I'd have to say the most challenging time of my entire broadcasting career. I'd only started on Nightlife about six weeks before we went into lockdown and I hardly knew my team. I just really just met them and suddenly the entire building at Ultimo in Sydney deserted of its 2,000 workers. It was just me and my studio producer late at night in this building in a city that we all thought was running rife with virus that was going to kill everyone. And as essential workers, we had to go out into that environment physically and go into the studio and broadcast. And fortunately, because at the ABC, our audience, our listeners are so important, that did become the priority. You didn't really think about your own well-being, maybe in the way we probably should have. But it was very much about how do we keep the people who listen to us, over a million listeners, to the ABC late at night. And that grew during the pandemic. In Melbourne, during their worst stages of lockdown, 40% of the city were listening to us. Our role was about keeping them informed, keeping them safe, giving them a sense of connection to each other because across borders and lockdowns, not being able to see family and friends, their relatives... We were really the only connection and late at night on weekends is often when your anxiety hits its worst period and that was when my audience was listening to our show. So we felt a double responsibility to help them get through that weekend every week. I learned a lot about resilience. People are extraordinarily resilient. We are fearful that when terrible things hit us, we're not going to get through. And there were some people that would share stories about how they got through their days, their nights, um, alone, without any human interaction or contact. It made me, I think, helped me write the book I ended up writing, The Space Between the Stars, because I realised that we fear the grief and the loss, and it's often the fear is worse than what the reality will be. And there was a strong sense of community that came through. People would ring up when we played the quiz every night and support someone else and say, you know, that I heard that woman speaking from Launceston and I'm happy to become her email pen pal and talk to her over the next, you know, couple of months just to keep her going. And I live down the road from that person. Maybe I can drop off some food, you know, if they want to pass on their address details or something. There was an extraordinary outpouring of support and generosity from the listeners and That in itself, I think, was very fortifying for us to help us get through it, to realise that it was going to be okay. People were, you know, there looking after each other and there was just such a powerful sense that if we pull together, we can get through this. And if any good came out of the pandemic, I think we all felt that, that sense of community and your neighbours helping you through in these dark times really came through to the fore. So it ended up being a real privilege, really, to sit with people in their solitude, in in the dark through those days and know that we went through a very difficult period 
and I think we've mostly got through it. It's an incredible statistic that 40% of Melbourne was listening during the harshest days of mm. lockdown. Incredible. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to talk to you about some other aspects of your career and then we'll come to the book. But you've made some amazing choices over time to move and use your skills in different ways. One of them, and I'm using the word choice deliberately, (laughs) a bit of a, you know, sort of pun there or something. In 2006, you actually became the media manager and spokesperson for the consumer magazine Choice. And you established in that role the Shonky Awards. That's the list you don't want to be on (laughs) for all of those dud products. What made you pick consumer activism? I'd always loved the work of choice. And as a journalist, it always frustrated me that they were brilliant scientists and, and brilliant researchers, but the way they packaged it for the media the media didn't always understand or or they couldn't sell it to the media. And I'd always secretly go, I wish I could rewrite that press release for them and then they would get everyone covering that story. And it had always just been a a secret fantasy because it's it's so hard these days to find any company, any organisation in Australia that isn't government funded or doesn't receive corporate money. I mean, I think Choice is probably, and the NRMA, the last organisations in the country. And it's very invaluable to get authentic, scientific, well-researched information that you can trust, that you know isn't being compromised by any other organisation. So I was always impressed by what Choice was about and they tried to do. When I went there, I had no idea. They were literally like the Pons Institute, men running around in white lab coats all day. We had five laboratories underneath my offices. The way they tested whether a pram, a a, a stroller would survive and was safe is they would build a machine that would pummel a baby stroller for hours and hours. And if it lasted, you know, 20 hours, then it was safe. If it fell apart after three hours, then it was unsafe. And they really did those tests and they really built those equipment. And they were just nerdish in the best possible way. But I just loved being a nerd as well. When they tested dishwashers, they designed these jars of spinach paste that they would put over all the plates and put it in the dishwasher and do all the cycles and see how many cycles before the spinach came off. And I just loved that they were authentic. I mean, I was the only person who didn't have a PhD in that organisation. They were so brilliant. I just needed to find ways to package that information that was accessible for the Australian public and get this information out because I had no idea how many unsafe products were on our shelves in Australia. How many complaints were made to the ACCC and and the different organisations that never drizzled back down to the consumers? There was a a dog's leash that we came across that had blinded a girl because it had snapped off the dog's collar, still available at the $2 shop around the country. And we ran these campaigns to stop them. And so what I realised from a media point of view is the media loves lists and they love good and they love bad. That's how the world is to them. So I thought, how can I get this complex information, important information out there that 
will get media attention. So I thought I'll put out a list of the 10 worst products. Media love those sorts of stories and the companies don't, so that'll be good. But it has to have a name. It can't just be the worst products from choice. It had to be something that was very Australian, that every Australian knew was code word for bad. And I was just playing around with some words and I came up with shonkies and I went, oh, that's perfect. (laughs) The shonkies, that's going to take off. And I'm very proud that I think it's something like 14 years now since we created them. They're still going really strong and they, they hold companies to account and make sure that their products are working and are safe. And you move from consumer activism to environmental activism. In 2009, you were actually selected to be one of the people trained by Vice President Al Gore to be a spokesperson on climate change. Mm. Now, clearly from your books, whether it's the edible garden or the edible city or even the space between the stars, your love of nature is apparent. But what took you from that, being someone who finds uh, solace in nature, who loves being in nature, to wanting to have your voice heard on climate change? Mm. It was a really big step for a journalist who, you know, usually you just take on the information and you try to present it without being an advocate for it. Climate change for me, I quickly started to see was going to be the issue that that it has become, but the issue that was going to be about the survival of the human species, you know, and the way the media tells stories is very much in a polarising way where there are two sides fighting against each other. It wasn't getting to the crux of what we needed to address when it came to climate change. So that traditional model wasn't working. So that was where I I felt I had to dip into the actual issue. And I've, I've since done that quite a few times, really, because sometimes journalism just isn't the right forum, the best forum to tell these stories. And I wanted to understand it more myself. I wanted to be on the ground and see the effects of droughts and floods and, the, you know, the effects on food supply issues. And the more I saw stepping out of that very narrow, you know, Sydney triangle we live in, the north shore of Sydney and then Potts Point where I live, I mean, it's a very privileged triangle. You don't really see the world as it is. And when you step out and go into a rural area that has no water and hasn't had any water, and the huge effects that that was having. And then, unfortunately, what has become this very intransigent way of looking at the issue and realising all the powers, all the money that was involved in this story and how much we were going to have to overcome, it was going to be how to activate people at a grassroots level to love nature. I really believe you won't save what you don't love. And if you start them understanding the love of a tree and the importance of seeing food grow and what tastes good that's organic without chemicals, they can become educated about water systems and uh, and about chemicals and sun and all the bigger issues that it's very hard in human years to see the changes we're going through. I think we're starting to see it, obviously, in the last couple of years. But 15 years ago, you know, people going, what do you mean? You know, it's a cold day today. What do you mean the, the earth's heating? You know, it was very basic back then. And so I found that that community level activism made me feel that I was actually doing something productive rather than just screaming at the television, which I was doing in my role as a journalist, and also educating myself as well, like getting a real sense of what life was like for people living with climate change rather than very wealthy, privileged people living in a big city like Sydney. So 
it's very frustrating. Obviously, all these years later, it doesn't feel as if we've moved a whole lot, but I do feel we have compared to where we were. I think that especially after this last federal election in Australia, there seems to be that we're moving in a direction now I don't think it can be turned back no matter what flavour of government comes in afterwards. So fingers crossed, you know, that we're at that stage now with exciting things, the technology can be implemented, the big changes, the community and, and business have been just waiting for governments to say, okay, this is what needs to happen and these are going to be the tax concessions, incentives and let's get going and, and make it happen. I feel very excited for someone who's been working in this sphere for a couple of years to feel that we're at a really great junction now. And do you see any gender element in all of that, in all of these conversations, this campaigning? Did men react differently to women or when you look at climate change's impact here and around the world, do you see differential impacts? Mm, definitely. When it comes to understanding environments, women overall around the world are mainly the farmers. They're the ones that grow things. They're the ones that feed their families. So these really crucial things that have been affected by changes in climate, they are seeing first. Nearly always the activists that I've worked with who understand the effects on food systems have been women, definitely. Women are really leading the charge. They were the first to speak up about it. They were the first to understand the implications that it was going to have for, for their, their cultures and their villages. So women have been the climate change leaders, no doubt, and the, and the biggest act activists. Coming now to the space between the stars and the way you sought healing through nature after your younger sister's death, I know this is uh, hard to talk about, but if you could talk to us about what happened for you and your family. It was in the grips of COVID when you couldn't easily get everybody together, you couldn't mark your sister's passing in the way you otherwise would have. Can you take us back to that time and how it felt for you? Mm, because it happened. My sister took a life about, I think it was four, six weeks into Melbourne's first lockdown. So when we got the news, we were just absorbing the global effect of the lockdown, then the national effect of, of the pandemic, and then we had this very personal experience of what the pandemic uh, was doing. My sister was a big swimmer. It was one of the ways she managed her mental health. And so we knew when Melbourne went into lockdown and closed swimming pools, she couldn't swim. We knew it was going to be a very difficult time for her, and unfortunately it was. We were all across borders. Uh, our families live in New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia. We all had to try to get to Melbourne. No planes were flying. So we hired cars, got in cars, drove across borders. And I remember that that drive with my husband and it was, again, an eerie drive that you only ever see in those horror movies where every town was shuttered, especially through country Victoria. And some towns actually said, please don't stop. Please don't stop here. Just, you know, and so you're thinking, gee, we're going through this terrible loss and now we're being treated like aliens, like virus carriers, and then thinking maybe we are, maybe we do have the virus. I mean, who knew? When we arrived in Melbourne, the funeral was reduced to 20, as it was for so many poor souls who had to go through that during that time. And then we couldn't grieve together because only 10 people were allowed at houses at the time. So we all had to leave immediately and go back to our homes. So something so traumatic, especially a suicide happening in these circumstances and times, just magnified the loss and, and the grief. When I came home, 
I couldn't grieve in the normal way. I couldn't be with my friends and family because we were in restriction. I just had this one and a half kilometres, five kilometres around. Fortunately, I had the Royal Botanic Gardens in my back garden, so I was able to do my ISO walks into a beautiful part of nature and just wonder if I could go through this grieving process on my own. I mean, there really wasn't much other sources of support that I could draw upon. And that was where I discovered this amazing Wharton Bay fig tree in the gardens. And there was something so welcoming and it was like it gave me a big hug and I found such extraordinary solace under that tree. And it was that tree that showed me that loss is part of life and it allowed me to be still and notice feathers falling and leaves falling. Again, they're all part of loss and renewal and rebirth. And as humans, we are part of nature. We're not separate, even though we sometimes think we are. And it reminded me I'm part of this process as well. And this tree had been there for 150 years and where it stood on the Woolloomooloo hillside, it had seen incredible things in that time because the original wharves of ships that would come through Sydney would dock at the Woolloomooloo wharves. So we would see the men and women who would go out to the First World War and then a lot of them not returning. That tree would have seen all of that. It would have seen the losses from the last pandemic, the Spanish flu in 1918, and maybe there would have been people grieving and needing solace underneath its branches during that period as well. My tree would have been there. And so that sense of permanence and continuity that that tree represented really gave me a lot of comfort and opened my eyes to all the other wonderful bits of nature around me that just started to fill my, you know, that hole with awe and wonder. So I got to know the feathers and the birds and the weeds and go cloud watching and we went puddle jumping with my um, little granddaughter. And bit by bit, those bits of nature, you know, reminded me that nature's been created to heal us and to help us everything about it, even the colour green I discovered when I spent time with different nature specialists, has been designed to heal us because green is in the middle of the light spectrum. So it's much easier for us to relax when we see green. That's why it's not an accident that everything is green around us. Just the way trees are and clouds and rivers, they all have the same fractal forms and those flows and tributaries and branches, we find very relaxing when we look at them and they allow our eyes to sort of linger and and just rest rather than concrete buildings which are very harsh and cold and solid Again, being around nature and seeing those patterns, I just found amazingly relaxing. It was really revelatory because I really didn't think, even though I know nature and I understand the joys and pleasures, I really didn't think it could be something that could help with such a big loss, such a big grief. But it really did. And so the writing of the book also was an important step, Julia, in stepping outside of my grief and giving it perspective and creating a place where I could write my thoughts and then leave them and walk away from them, which I think is really important because you you can tend to ruminate a lot with, with grief. So what I hope this book will do is enable other people to know that they're not alone when they go through these losses, particularly things like suicide where there is still a lot of taboo around the discussion of it. And a lot of people I've heard from since the book have said, thank you because I've never been able to talk to anyone about this. I feel that you can understand you've gone through it as well. Sharing grief is such an important step in the healing process. I had a great grief counsellor as well. I really recommend that. Finding a safe place to share those um, feelings and sit with it. Don't be afraid. Don't put it into the bag of shadows because it will bubble up at some stage. 
grief and the journey that I went through can be an extraordinary way, again, I wouldn't have understood it, to enliven the memory of someone. Like I feel it closer now to my sister than I did when she was alive and I wouldn't have thought that was possible. Writing those stories, reliving those childhood memories, the Highland dancing, you know, the naughty things where she pretended to be Vivian Richards' daughter and signed her autograph in the books at the cricket. There was just so many wonderful experiences and memories that now having them in a book, it means that I just can look at them when I do miss her and go, oh, that was really funny, you know. And so it was a great process of healing in itself. So I hope that it it encourages people to share their grief, uh, for us to talk more about our grief, because mental illness, particularly since the pandemic and, and mental anxieties have just skyrocketed. And grief can lead to a lot of, you know, poor mental health. So Talk about your grief. Don't be afraid of it. Um, Share it. You know, you can only grieve if you're loved. Loving is a good thing. And the size of your grief is really a reflection of the size of your love, you know. So it's it's wonderful in a way that you can grieve because it means you've loved. One of the things that really struck me is how you needed to move through what you refer to as the why done it. So you talk about how a traditional detective novel, a murder mystery, is all about who done it and the detective solves it at the end for us. Whereas when you were thinking about your sister's death, the question for you is why? Why did she do it? And that really struck me because when you think about the suicide statistics in Australia, I mean, around 3,000 Australians each year die by suicide. That's a lot of family members, community members, colleagues, friends who are left Mm. with that question, why in their mind? And can you just talk a bit about how you moved your way through that question? Mm. Because I'd covered suicide quite a bit as a journalist, I understood that people get stuck in the why. So intellectually, I understood it. And then when I went through it myself, I fell into the trap because it's an emotional thing, obviously. So why? Why couldn't we have stopped this? Why couldn't we have helped her? And fortunately, I understood quite quickly that why was always going to be the wrong question to ask. And the question I needed to ask was how to find the meaning in what had happened So I was very lucky that I jumped into that space. And I think it's only because I'd heard so many stories about families that are just stuck in the why for the rest of their lives. You are never going to find the answer to the why, never. I'm very much someone who wants to move forward to find answers to things. So the things I could find the answer to is how can I find meaning in what has happened? And I think that grief cycle that we all, I learned about in sociology, Kubler-Ross, about you know, the the anger and the acceptance and, and things, I realised that, you know, it's perfectly legitimate to go through the anger. That's understandable. Many members of our family have gone through that stage. But for me, I wanted to understand what I could learn from my sister's life, what I could learn from her death, and how what I'd experienced may help other people. I really think that we don't think about death enough. We're never ready in the way that we need to be when it happens. You don't want to think about it too much because that, you know, adds greyness to your life. But if you're ill prepared for it when it comes along, it can be, you know, really devastating. So that for me, I think, was the meaning that I thought I was lucky that I'd got to 50 and hadn't had a big loss in my life. And that wasn't a lucky thing at all. It meant that I was very ill prepared for it. And what death is, is an understanding that all of us, are in the queue. We're all in the queue. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. What it can be is when you realise that, it just heightens the appreciation of every day. 
the gratitude that I now live with is so much more deeper. And those little ants that I watched when I'd sit under my tree and my ant specialist would say, you know, they only live for six to seven days. And I'd go, that's hardly any time at all, six to seven days. They have to do everything. They have to build a nest, they have to reproduce, and they do this really important decomposition role for us in our natural world. And there I was feeling really upset that I only had 48 years with my sister that I call Stargirl in the book. And really 48 years is quite a long time, you know, compared to an ant that only has six to seven days. And so it started to change my perspective on what I had and what I lost. And even though I didn't have my sister, I still had 48 years of her and amazing memories. And if I just relived every one of the great memories, that would take me through to the next 30 years of my life, it, you know. So it was a lot of time really in the in the sort of spans of, of the cosmos. And how I feel now when I went stargazing one night from my balcony and I saw the most extraordinary stars through a telescope that a local guy had brought up for me. And I saw all these stars and I really, really for the first time looked at the light and thought, some of those stars are no longer with us, but I'm still seeing their light. And it gave me these parallels between what I'd gone through with my sister. Okay, so she may not have still been with us, but I can still see her light and experience her light. Nature gave me a different way of looking at this cycle of endings and beginnings and the continuity and how we're just this little speck in the cosmos, you know, and probably made me, if anything else, just made me want to make it count more. And so even though rushing and urgency isn't a good thing, but the, the minutes I have, I want them to be spent in the best possible way, that I can use my abilities, use my skills uh, to find, you know, my purpose. That has all come through a loss and through a death, and that's pretty good meaning to sort of end with. It is very good meaning to end with. I'm going to take you now to the questions that I always ask my guests, but I'm going to mix up the order for you. So your first question is, if you had all the power in the world, but you could only do one thing, what would be the one thing you would do for women? I mean, I, I think I genuinely am someone who is colourblind, genderblind. That's probably why I love Star Trek so much. I love the idea of going on to an alien ship and a planet and just accepting whatever, how many tentacles you have coming out of you <laughs> and weird flippers and googly eyes. So what I'd almost do, want to do is just make everyone blind to actually any, any difference that anyone has almost, you know, so that you just interact with people just as you find them, that there is no sense of difference and gender and race and colour, you know, that we're all just blobs. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst misogyny you've ever faced? You've talked about your start in uh, journalism and on TV and the ABC, but are there other forms of misogyny you've come across and what was the worst? I've been lucky it hasn't mainly been directed at me, but it is what I've had to report on and cover and witness, and, and there are some horrific things, you know. It's the worst examples of, of some of the most horrific domestic violence that I've seen when a man kills his wife and, and their children or when a, a wife has acid thrown at her face, you know, in India. Those stories, again, not, never touch me personally, just fill me with absolute horror that you could do that to another human being purely because of their gender. And that it can still be like that. Oh, still going on. Absolutely. 
I normally ask my guests a fact and ask them to respond, but I'm mixing that up too for you. <laughs> so what I'm going to ask you is to supply a fact. What are we doing together on October 4 and October 5? <laughs> We're going to have some fun, Julia. Aren't We're we? going to have some fun. Well, for me, it's going to be a total treat because not only am I going to be able to honour you and that amazing, not now, not ever, misogyny speech that you gave in Parliament 10 years ago, but honour the people, the men and women that brought us to that point, all the rights that we won, you know, so it's going to be a wonderful two evenings. It's going to be a wonderful two evenings, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney, not now, not ever, looking forward to it. And finally, we always go back to Virginia Woolf and Virginia Woolf says, green in nature is one thing, green in literature another. Nature and letters seem to have a natural antipathy. Bring them together and they tear each other to pieces. Indira Naidu says, one of my most favourite moments was introducing my book to my tree. I took it along one day and I put it next to my tree and it was for the first time I really understood the power of what a book is. It's not just the ideas, but it's what it's made of. It's made of trees. It is, absolutely. Mm. I think you've done better than Virginia Woolf there. <laughs> I want to say again, I very much enjoyed the book. And, Thanks, Julia. Um, out of your reflections, I learned so much and you've inspired me to concentrate more when I'm doing beach walks in Adelaide, just on the movement of nature, the sound of the waves, looking at the sand, the little creatures you sometimes find mm. in the sands. And it is restorative. So thank you for that. And Good. thank you for this conversation. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash giwl and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at giwlkings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.